Hey folks, Stephen here. Before we kick things off, I have a request to make. We want to hear from you. Do you have a question that you want us to answer? Something burning in your mind that you want us to address? Well, record yourself asking that question on your phone and send it to us. Uh, make it a short question. Do it in a quiet room. Uh, then press record and send us a voice memo to podcasts at greentechmedia.com. We're going to have some Q&A shows for both the Energy Gang and my other podcast, The Interchange which I co-host with Shale Khan. So send in your voice memos, again, to podcast at greentechmedia.com, and uh, maybe we'll address your question on an upcoming episode. And while you're doing that, go get yourself a sense box. Sense is this little orange box that connects to your electric panel and samples power over a million times per second. It's a very powerful tool for seeing how your house and your appliances are performing, both for people with solar and people without solar. It's a great way to save energy and save money. And you have three days left from the posting of this episode to get a 10% discount on a Sense box. Through the month of April, we are able to offer our listeners a 10% discount if you go to sense.com slash energy gang. That's like sense, like you got common sense if you go there, sense.com slash energy gang to get your 10% discount on the Sense box. From Green Tech Media, this is The Energy Gang, a weekly digest on energy, clean tech, and the environment. I'm Stephen Lacey. Welcome. Are we entering a new era of grid planning? Over the last few years, we've assumed that sweeping reforms are the best way to get distributed energy built. But in pockets of the country, we're seeing a more localized approach to deploying these assets. And it could be the sign of a much bigger shift to come. Then, why is one of the most progressive utilities in the country slow to scale its new energy offerings? We'll give you a hint. It's all about knowing the customer better. Finally, we revisit Puerto Rico. The power is mostly back on there. Hurricane season is approaching quickly. What comes next? In the District of Columbia are my two wonderful co-hosts, Catherine Hamilton and Jigger Shaw. Catherine is the chair of 38 North Solutions. Coincidentally, she's been sitting down, locked to a chair in another technical conference at FERC. How was it? It was great. It wasn't as packed as the Distributed Energy Resource Technical Conference, but it was pretty important for demand response folks. Were there any elevated stages or lasers shooting from the ceiling? There were definitely not, thankfully. I'm, and I was sitting in the back row, quietly typing on my laptop. Do you want to tell people what I mean by that? Yeah. So for folks who don't know and who haven't followed uh, Twitter recently, when I was in Berlin, I had to give out a an award at what I thought was just going to be kind of a regular old conference. And it turned out it was a spinning stage at a techno club with laser beams. <laughs> and it was it was insane. I've spoken at two places where I felt particularly small. One was at Mount Rushmore, which was incredibly impressive. And this was the second one. I saw someone tweet out that uh, Catherine Hamilton is addressing the Galactic Senate, which had me li literally laughing out loud. You, if you don't follow Catherine on Twitter, go go check out this photo. It is very funny. Jigger, uh, I was checking out your Twitter feed this week, and I saw you were doing uh, another podcast interview. And what were you wearing? You were in your classic bubble vest. Are you wearing that every day? Is that do, do you ever not wear your bubble vest? No, it's like my security blanket. It's uh, it's 
It's, you know, like, it's my, I don't have to think about what I'm going to wear jacket. So I'm recording here in my home. And when I don't actually get dressed for the office, I wear the same blue zip up sweatshirt and um, brimmed Burton hat. And my wife calls it my uniform and she can't stand it. But it's my good luck outfit when we podcast it. It's inspiring and it's easy for me. So we're starting this week's show in uh, both of your backyards. It's a much deeper follow-up to a story that Jigger brought up at the end of a recent episode. D.C. council members recently introduced a bill that would force the local utility, PEPCO, to consider a range of distributed non-wires alternatives to any infrastructure project over $25 million. So a lot of opportunity. It would create this DER authority that would collect competitive bids to compete with traditional poles and wires upgrades. And this is like a much different approach to the New York reformation that we've focused on for years, which basically tried to remake grid operations and utility business models all at once and created a very difficult task consequently. It's also indicative of a new trend that is kind of popping up around the country. Local communities are starting to use planning approaches like this to encourage the use of distributed energy in place of gas peakers or maybe coal-fired power plants. And I think it's helpful to provide that context here too. But first to DC, to the DER authority bill, Jigger, remind us what it does. So the DC uh, DER authority bill was was, uh, introduced by council members Mary Shea and Charles Allen. Um, And so it's one of those bills that you know, really could pass the D.C. Council, which is why I think it matters. Um, what it does is create a separate uh, distributed energy resources authority. And that authority would review any project above $25 million in size to determine whether a non-wires alternative can be deployed to meet the capacity reliability needs instead of the, you know, 20th century solution that PEPCO might put forward. Why is that a big deal? Well, you know, I was talking to the Minnesota Public Service Commission and Excel Energy up there is, you know, pretty progressive all in all. And they were saying that Excel Energy used to dump so many of these proposals on them at one time that the staff just couldn't keep up with the volume. And so that so there was really no way for the staff to really dig into all 56 projects or whatever that Excel would give give them. They could only get into one or two projects. So this really creates the resources separate from the Public Service Commission to make sure that they really do have the time and expertise necessary to give non-wireless alternatives a chance, not only on one or two big projects like you had BQDM in, in New York City, but for all projects that are $25 million and up. So I am all for planning and being part of the planning process. I think that is critical. And whether you use the example in Minnesota, which has an integrated resource planning process because they're an integrated utility, or whether you use the sort of the decentralized or decoupled utility uh, like PEPCO, I think planning is critical and you have to be in the room for that. I do have a concern about them building out a whole different entities separate from the commission, because the commission has all the authority to do this. So if they could simply carve out more funding with a lot of the same goals as the, that this bill wants to get to, but give the commission the ability to have additional staff or whatever they need to look at DERs, I just feel like it needs to come from the commission um, rather than having to create a whole nother entity for, for this. So I don't, 
I don't know. I think their heart's in the right place and they want to get to the right thing. I just think this creates a level of bureaucracy that may not be as, as efficient. Yeah, no, I, look, I I hear what you're saying and I think you're probably right. I just think that, you know, this is in response to the dysfunction that everyone's, you know, sitting in. Like, I think if people thought that everybody around the table was actually going to do things in a straightforward manner, then such draconian sort of, you know, sort of suggestions wouldn't be necessary. But I think the lack of trust in DC is so deep that no one trusts Pepco to do the right thing. And they certainly don't even trust the DC Public Service Commission to do the right thing. And so, I mean, that's why they keep proposing the sustainable energy utility, which is separate, and now the DER authority, which is separate. And I don't think it's just a DC thing. I think around the country, a lot of folks believe that regulators have become captured. Um, And that's, I think, one of the big challenges. Yeah. And the legislators do have an oversight function, so they can then pass laws that force regulators or ask regulators under the law to comply with certain actions, including looking at non-wires alternatives, making sure that uh, RFPs that utilities issue are fully inclusive and don't just have gas generation on the menu. So I think there is a place for legislators to do this. Our Grid Edge um, reporter, Jeff St. John, wrote a very detailed piece for GTM Squared on how the DER authority might work and what some of the challenges of implementation might be. And he quoted uh, Sam Brooks, who was on this podcast, actually talking about why there's a lack of data on uh, city climate efforts. You'll remember that episode, perhaps. Uh, Sam is a well-known figure in the DC energy circle. And he was talking to Jeff and said, this is where I think Rev should have gone, right? A more targeted approach to non-wires alternatives, maybe creating a body with a little bit more of a strict focus. What do you all think of that take? Um, Is this something, is this more targeted approach, something that the regulators in New York should have looked at rather than complete market-wide overhaul? Well, it's very clear to all of us that Rev has taken much longer to accomplish its goals. Um, They now have a new chair, um, you know, in John Rhodes to like try to figure out a way to get it done. And and it's it's hard. I mean, it's just it's really hard. And I do think that the utility companies are so smart and so good at getting around the intent of the governor's office and others that, you know, that these types of extreme measures are what, you know, Sam and others have come up with. And, you know, I don't fault them for coming up with these extreme measures. I, I certainly hear the, um, you know, the sort of uh, critique that, you know, Catherine provided, but I just think that a lot of these are coming out of such frustration with, you know, how slow the rev process has taken. Yeah, I, I agree. Everything is taking a long time. Um, but I also think planning has to be done in a very holistic fashion to make sure that, you really put the utilities feet to the fire or do some kind of a credible third party demand forecasting. And that's a big piece of all of this is what is demand going to look like? How are consumers going to participate? And it's been notoriously awful everywhere. So trying to get a handle on that as part of the planning process. So whether or not you have a separate 
commission that's looking at it, at least make sure that all the dots are connected so that you're not doing one thing where, you know, oh, let's just do this one pilot project that'll that'll look at non-wires alternatives and instead make sure it's built into the entire planning process. Um, and I and I think it this also goes back to FERC's Order 1000, which basically says that when you think about building transmission, you have to look at alternatives to transmission. And I think this should be ingrained in all of our regulatory constructs, whether they're local, municipality, state, or federal. So what does PEPCO have to say about all this? There's clearly some resistance. They're, they appear to be mostly worried about customer data, or at least that's what they're talking about publicly, which is what a lot of utilities say when they resist some of these um, types of policymaking efforts. What is um, What are PEPCO's grievances so far? How do we expect them to lobby... Uh, alongside or against this, uh, you know, whatever their position might be. And and maybe let's be fair too. like, what are some legitimate grievances that we truly need to work out on the utility side of the table? Well, I, you know, I, I'll, yeah, I guess I would say that I don't think that I can really be fair. Um, <laughs> you know, I mean, look, I don't think Pepco has very many legitimate grievances, period, having lived in DC for 20 plus years. But I, look, I, um, I, I think that the customer privacy piece is interesting, but I don't really get it. I mean, this customer data is provided to everybody. I mean, we're DC is a retail electricity provider state, right? So we have re- retail electricity providers who have customer data all the time, right? I mean, the same thing's true in California where you have CCAs, all those CCAs have customer data. Um, it doesn't feel like the the customer privacy stuff is is new. It feels like there are existing ways in which you deal with that. And, you know, those can be dealt with here too. And particularly when you're creating an authority, which would have some sort of oversight, um, you know, like sort of government oversight. So it just feels like, you know, that can be dealt with. But separately, I think Pepco's grievances are going to be like, look, this is, um, this is, you know, a bunch of, um, you know, self-serving people that are pushing non-wells alternatives, um, you know, that if they were really as cost-effective as people claim it was, then we'd be using them in greater numbers, but they're not. And there's all these issues. And, you know, like, we just don't, you know, like the fact that people are, you know, inferring that we're not taking this stuff seriously on our own. Well, another thing they're saying is that this is impeding on their ability to manage critical infrastructure and um, a safe and reliable service for customers. And I mean, I feel like that's, that is an operational issue. That's not a policy issue. And if the DER commission is mostly focused on, you know, making sure that you consider all the alternatives that you can and all the cost effective solutions for customers, that's separate from how a utility operates its system. So I, I feel like those two things, um, don't need to necessarily be in conflict with each other. We're talking about this because, of course, it's interesting on its own, but it's um, it comes along with a couple of other stories that may show us that we're reaching a tipping point for localized distributed resources. Um, Glendale, California, earlier this month, put a stop to a gas repowering project and in, in a similar way, forced the reevaluation of using distributed resources to fill in for this natural gas plant that was very controversial in the community. Before this, the Puente gas project in California, a gas project pushed by NRG, was suspended because DER, distributed energy alternatives, were shown to be more competitive. 
And the information that regulators had was actually very outdated. And once they got updated data, the gears of the regulatory process stopped. And they said, whoa, well, there's a lot of other alternatives here that are more competitive with this gas plant. And um, I, 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 when you look at the economics of just battery storage alone compared to, say, gas peakers, you're going to see a lot more of this activity. And local policymakers are starting to wake up to the fact that they now have this range of alternatives to localized plants that may be controversial. Any thoughts about how this fits into that broader picture? Yeah, I agree that you have to make sure that any kind of non-wireless alternatives are are put into those planning processes. And so many of those are done in closed doors where, you know, if you're not in the room, you do not have a say in this and something comes out the other end that may or may not make any sense at all based on a host of factors, based on whether they're going to even have the, de- the demand for whatever big project the utility wants to build or whether um, they really are going to meet any kind of clean air requirements or renewables or carbon requirements that the state or local jurisdiction has set forth, or that they're going to increase customer rates in some way because of this asset that they're building. So I feel like this has to come in very early in the process. And I would be fearful that if you try to put something on top of it, and I would just be interested in understanding a little bit more about how the folks in DC visualize this working, because I would be fearful that this commission would be chugging along and be out of the room. And if you're not in the room when these planning processes are happening, it's really, really hard to write the ship. Yeah, look, I, you know, I would take the the different tact on this, which is that I think that one of the reasons why venture capital has really dried up in this space is because so many of these companies have gone bankrupt waiting for people to make the right decisions. I think, as you said, Stephen, you know, folks come to the right decision sort of five years late, even though a lot of these companies provided testimony in the process through the commission process early on and said, we can do this 90% cheaper than building a gas plant. The commission sort of got railroaded into growing to the gas plant anyway. And it wasn't until five years later, they realized that battery storage or demand response or other things were cheaper. And, you know, in the meantime, those companies have gone bankrupt, right? And it was exactly the way the utilities wanted them to. And so I think the challenge for us here is, is again, like I agree with Catherine, I don't know that the DER authority is the best way to solve this, but no one's got any other better options, right? And so the challenge is, is that a lot of these companies have great ideas and then they end up you know, going out of business until anyone hears them out. I agree that a lot of these companies had financial problems because they were waiting for procurements beyond pilots, but I disagree that uh, utilities wanted these companies to go bankrupt. I think that a lot of utilities would be willing to consider alternatives um, if they felt like they were cost-competitive alternatives. And five years ago, I don't think there were very many people saying that they had cost-competitive alternatives to natural gas. There were, you know, there were occasional projects where you could maybe um, compete with a gas peaker with, you know, a lithium-ion battery. Like AES has been talking about this for a little while, but. You know, five years ago, the economics for this range of resource were so different, and the demand side management piece was pretty unproven. We were just starting to see companies like Opower and Converge engage in behavioral demand response. So I do disagree with the time frame and the utility approach. I think that they were they were operating in good faith given the data that they had. 
Yeah, look, I, I don't think the data backs you up, Stephen. Like, I, I think that in general, there have been folks who have loudly criticized these types of moves by utility companies, and it's fallen on deaf ears. Most recently, the Southern California Edison Company had these great progressive contracts with um, the load control uh, reduction program in their territory where they gave contracts to battery storage companies and and uh, thermal energy storage companies, but they married them with natural gas power plants. And, you know, Sierra Club and others took them to court to stop that and said, look, these gas plants are not cost effective. And by the time they come online, they will be albatrosses. And, you know, and folks said, well, you know, why don't you just let them have their gas plants, et cetera. And now we're realizing that that Sierra Club was right. And I, I do think that this happens over and over again, where the utility companies and their public service commission masters tend to just really miss these things, even though they're in the business of putting, you know, 20 year infrastructure in place. Well, and another issue is that utilities are very used to seeing and, and system operators are very used to seeing certain types of resources, generally, you know, incumbent generators on the grid. And so they have a certain vision of what that kind of resource provides, what the type of service it is, the metering and telemetry and visibility, all of those things that go along with that. And DERs are just completely different. You don't need to have, they're very much edge of grid. Mostly if you're aggregating, that's where you need information and visibility to come in. But putting requirements that they need to act and look just like the incumbent has really been a barrier for a lot of DERs. And I think that's what we're trying to break through is to say, look, it's okay. It's, it may be different, but it's more flexible. You actually get more benefits out of it because you'll be able to stack the benefits. You'll be able to use them when you need them and where you need them and at the price you need them. And don't worry that it doesn't look like a gas plant, but we're, we, we have a long way to go on that and, and getting people to see something different. So, so I think getting back to the DC, uh, you know, DER authority, I, I just think that this is really about folks just being so frustrated that they just can't wait for another for a technical conference and another proceeding and another round of delays. Like I just think people are looking for ways to accelerate the process through their their legally, you know, sort of uh, elected representatives. Catherine, I do think that we are starting to see many of these resources proved out now, to your point. And we actually published our GridEdge Innovation Awards today, and we have our top 10 list of projects around the country that are sort of proving out um, effective use of distributed energy assets in place of traditional infrastructure or power plants. And what you're seeing is that these projects are way more diverse now, and they have multiple years of operating data. So we're at this different moment now where many of our you know, previous awards were focused on companies that were deploying pilots or one-off projects, and now many of these projects have a lot of operating data. And so that feeds into this positive trend. We're going to take a quick break here to talk about Sense, our sponsor of the Energy Gang. Sense lets you keep tabs on your home, save energy, and make the most of your solar investment. It is brought to you by the same team that brought speech recognition technology to market. They are now focused on the home. Sense uses machine learning technology to identify the unique electrical signatures of your individual devices. Those real-time insights can let you know 
all sorts of things about your home remotely. You can see which appliances are on and off, um, how they're performing in relation to your solar production, or just how they're performing even if you don't have solar. The thing is, though, folks, the clock is ticking. We can offer you a 10% discount on a SenseBox through the month of April, but that just gives you just a few days to go check this out. Go go watch their video at uh, sense.com slash energy gang. You can get a sense of how the product works. Uh, the data is very powerful. Uh, if you have solar, you can compare your home energy use and solar production side by side. There's no monthly fee. For solar installers who want to help customers make the most of their solar investment, you know, you can offer this. For utilities that are looking to deliver more holistic energy services, it can help with that, with, with customer interaction as well. And for homeowners who don't have solar, again, it's just great to get a sense of how your home is operating. To find out more about what Sense can do for you, your home, and your family, and uh, to get that 10% discount, visit sense.com slash energy gang. That's uh, sense, like S-E-N-S-E, sense.com slash energy gang. We go now to the idyllic hills of Vermont, the Green Mountains. Vermont's Green Mountain Power is there, and it bills itself not as a utility, but as an energy transformation company. Regular listeners may have heard me interview CEO Mary Powell a couple of times in the last year. She hates using industry terms that I think we fall into, like demand-side management, rate payers, or even the word utility. She's all about creativity and not just selling electrons. And uh, she's just got a really fascinating approach to managing the utility, but uh, this stuff is hard no matter how creative you get. Over the last few years, Green Mountain Power has undertaken this all-encompassing approach to reforming itself. They've got this Tesla Powerwall lease offering, you know, Nest thermostat, grid interactive heat pumps, EV chargers, thermal storage. But a new report from the Rocky Mountain Institute, one that was actually commissioned by Green Mountain Power, concludes that the utility isn't on track to meet its goals. And in fact, it only reached 2% of customers, I believe, with those offerings. So how does such a progressive utility in such a progressive state see such low participation rates? And more importantly, how should it boost participation? Catherine, what's the situation there in Vermont, according to this research? Yeah, well, so first of all, I reached out to Mary Powell and I said, hey, so how are you doing? How are the goals? And she thinks they're hitting it out of the ballpark. She said they've exceeded all their goals. They have three tiers. Tier one is like grid scale renewables. Tier two is accelerating distributed energy resources. And tier three is replacing fossil fuel heating and transportation with with electrification. And she said they've doubled their tier three goal and they've they've decided to increase it because they're doing so well. So she thinks that this is actually much more successful than some of the reporting has indicated. And they just won, um, they're in the top 10, they're actually number eight on SEPA's list that was released yesterday of utilities that have done solar and storage. So she feels like they're doing really well and is more concerned about moving the regulatory environment forward. So that's how they see it. When RMI looked at it and released this report, a lot of what this report is saying is, how do we, as you say, how do we get to customers? How do we do a better job marketing? How do we segment? We've been talking about this for a long time with Smart Grid. And um, it just takes a long time for a utility to be seen as a service and solutions provider, as opposed to just 
the the company that you call when your electricity goes out. So it is it, it's an evolution. I don't think the Green Mountain Power sees themselves as failures at all, and I think they feel like they have really gotten a pretty good start on this. I, you know, I guess I just I just want to make sure that we're having a conversation um, using apples to apples comparisons, right? In the 1980s. When the electric utility industry decided that they wanted to rip out natural gas and convert people's water heaters to electric, it was extraordinary how fast they were able to do that. It wasn't like a 2% response rate. They actually got the whole thing done in four or five years, right? I mean, if they have to put their mind to it, it's amazing how fast they can do these kind of things, right? And in Vermont, you've got a place where you've got so many households who are on fuel oil. You think that if they were serious, they would just go to the commission and say, look, we are going to rate base every single person's house to convert their fuel oil to, you know, geothermal heating or ground source heat pumps or whatever it is. We'll partner with Dandelion. We'll make it all happen. And we're just going to get it done. And we're just going to pay for it, right? We're just going to rate base all of it because it helps us sell more power, right? It's amazing when the utility companies actually want to do something, how fast they can do it. And when they like make it all voluntary programs and only 2% of the customers show an interest, they're like, oh, well, we're doing everything we can. We tried really hard, but it just didn't get the customer uptake. Yeah, but the con- context is really different too. We had gone several decades ago, we had gone through a period of time where a lot of power plants, especially the nuclear plants were being built and rates were skyrocketing. So when a utility went to the commission and said, I want to do a program that allows people to be more energy efficient, everybody was open to that. Rates just aren't reflecting the cost anymore. And so you have to, a utility has to be so much more creative about what kinds of programs they put into place. So I do give um, Mary Powell and Green Mountain Power a shout out for doing this, really trying to take a good look at themselves and saying, what can we do? And some of these pretty interesting ideas that RMI came up with, like being an energy concierge for small and medium businesses, well, you know, this is great that Green Mountain Power is thinking about doing this. Maybe it's better that a third party do it rather than a utility. I mean, these are sort of some things we're going to have to be learning. And we are learning in the New York Rev that, you know, who who are the trusted resources here. But at least they're trying to look at how can we be creative because we're in a really different context when we than we were then. The recommendations do come down to some very basic principles. And the most important one is know your customer figure out how to segment your customers better. Um, and it, it seems like that's the, a major shortcoming of Green Mountain Power right now. It has a bunch of different programs that it's pushing. And the report hints at the fact that it, it doesn't have, it does like surveys and it kind of knows general um, types of customers that it wants to, to push certain products to, but it, it hasn't done granular segmentation. So that's a, a big area of opportunity for Green Mountain Power, but just for all like the service companies out there that are looking to partner with utilities, utilities still have a long way to go before they can truly understand their customers. Right. So solutions providers, third parties can help connect those dots for them and help them figure out how to look at their consumers and segments that a utility may normally think of, which is like residential versus commercial uh, commercial and industrial and then you know who are the residential folks the the segmentation breaks out you know could break out very differently than the utilities used to to viewing consumers 
There's another element of this that was not addressed in the report, but comes just generally from my experience, both living in New England, spending a lot of time in Vermont, and also seeing how people respond to our reporting on Green Mountain Power on the website. There's a lot of skepticism in Vermont about Green Mountain Power. Um, They see it as kind of a greedy, money-grubbing corporation. They don't like its support of some uh, large-scale like utility scale renewable energy projects in the state. And I think in Vermont, you you have a very widespread distrust of big companies. And even though Mary Powell is out there with this progressive, creative view on hopefully transforming the utility, Vermonters have a very different way of seeing how the company operates. And I wonder if there's some tension there in in, in in lowering engagement rates. And maybe that's why we see lower engagement rates. That's just, you know, kind of a pet theory of mine that, that maybe that does have some kind of a role. Yeah. Anecdotally, I know exactly what you're talking about, Stephen. And, and you can see, you know, case in point, I think we've talked about this before with the Lowell Wind Project that Green Mountain Power built on the top of a, of a mountain range. And Craftsbury, the town that looks at it, just they just cannot stand it. And that is exactly how they view Green Mountain Power. My overall point of view here is not against Mary Powell. I think she's an extraordinary person and is trying really hard. But it's the same vein that I view Statoil or David Crane's performance at NRG or others, which is that we are in a time where we need to decarbonize our energy system. Separately, commissions want these utilities to sell more electricity because it would actually lower rates. And we can do that through electrifying more stuff like heating or in Vermont, it's easy because it's fuel oil or in places like, like electric vehicles. And when I see people who are working their ass off, but are not actually reaching the results, I can't just shrug my shoulders and say, well, they tried. Because that's not how business works. Maybe how government agencies work or this works or that works. But in business, you have to be able to deliver on your metrics. If you can't deliver on your metrics and you can't actually achieve all the goals that you set out for yourself, you don't get the award. That's my thing. Yeah, I mean, it's a fair point. It's a fair point. And I, I do think we should we should hold these utilities up to a very high standard, particularly if they're out in front talking about how progressive they are. And I think Mary Powell is quite visionary in the way she leads the utility. Um, And so we have to hold her up to a higher standard as well. With that said, I think Green Mountain Power does deserve some credit for undertaking this study as a way to publicly say, here's how we can do better. I don't see a lot of utilities doing that. And that's why this study is quite interesting. And she's still new into her program. I think she is going to make some more strides and you know they're going to they're going to learn every year how better to do this. Let's finish on Puerto Rico now. So, it's been 7 months since Hurricane Maria. We're about 5 weeks away from another Atlantic hurricane season. The power has just come back on in Puerto Rico and already residents are gearing up for more storms. The difference now is that we've got a bunch of new microgrids on the island that appear to be performing well, and we've got a process underway for privatizing PREPA, uh, the island's utility, amidst a a broader financial reform effort for the Commonwealth. So a lot going on here. Jigger, there, there are just a ton of things happening in Puerto Rico all at once. Where do things stand as we barrel toward storm season? Well, look, I mean, the situation in Puerto Rico just breaks my heart. It's it just I still cannot believe that there are people who 
have yet to get their power turned back on um, so many months after Hurricane Maria. And, and it's, you know, people are like, well, but, you know, they live remotely and they're in mountains and whatever. But I guarantee you if they lived in West Virginia, they'd have their power by now. So I just, it's not acceptable. I think the other piece of this, though, is that there's actually a lot of challenges that come from the lack of electricity, right? There are a lot of people who've passed away because of health implications from this. I mean, the Zika virus is going gangbusters right now in Puerto Rico, which causes other challenges for newborns and whatnot. And it just feels to me like we still haven't ended the chaos. I was having this interesting conversation with the industrial association. Um, It was a bunch of companies who manufacture things in Puerto Rico, and they are just at their wits end. They cannot get reliable power to run their manufacturing facilities in Puerto Rico. And so they're just always on diesel, which is 35 cents a kilowatt hour, which just isn't cost effective to run their facilities. The good news is that as opposed to most other jurisdictions, third parties are allowed under the law to own microgrids. So that does allow the construct for privately owned microgrids. Um, I reached out to someone who's been involved in the work with the energy commission there And the governor wants to disband this commission and form a new one and is supposed to send legislation to their their legislature um, soon. And this would really redo the Commission Authority Act 57. It would set up a new commission with between three and five commissioners, would also restructure the utility system. So it would separate the T&D from generation assets and generation assets most of which are currently owned by PREPA would be privatized. And then the T&D side would be set up as kind of concessions. So they would be leasing to, to folks to run, to operate the system. So there would be some private utility who would operate the system on a lease basis. They wouldn't have to take on the debt of PREPA. This has happened in Turks and Caicos. They have um, a party that has taken on the concession of running the grid, and it seems to be working. Um, So it'll be interesting to see how that all shakes out, because the commission, as is, although it has been terribly understaffed, has been getting a lot done. They've been making decisions through proceedings that I have really allowed a lot of things to start happening, certainly not happening fast enough, but you just got to hope that that continues so that there will be some kind of stability there on the grid. PREPA seems to be dealing with a bunch of different things all at once. Uh, Financial instability, restructuring, but also a loss, a massive loss of customers. You know, 200,000 people have left Puerto Rico because of the hurricane after Hurricane Maria, and a half a million people have left in the last decade. So then at the same time, you're going to start seeing, you know, hundreds or thousands of microgrids popping up around the Commonwealth. You have declining demand, declining customers, uh, financial restructuring. Boy, it's a hard road ahead for PREPA. Yeah. And what they were trying to do was to get their load back by bringing in, by incentivizing like pharma and other industries to come in. But as Jigger says, if they don't have reliable energy service, they're not going to stay. Well, and the other piece of this, which disturbs me, is that Department of Energy is estimating that they're going to have spent $17 billion as the U.S. government to return power to Puerto Rico. And because we weren't able to get out from underneath the Stafford Act, all of that money is in, 
you know, like is in, in infrastructure that is not resilient, right? And so we weren't able to build back connected microgrids like AES had suggested, et cetera. We could have turned the entire island into a renewable energy microgrid-led island for $17 billion. We've got some microgrids operating. So there's a bunch of FEMA generators, obviously. I think there's like 1,200 FEMA generators. Um, there are, you know, a handful of microgrids developed by... Sonnen and Tesla and some other third parties. Um, I know that Resilient Power Puerto Rico, this group of uh, New Yorkers who are tied to the island, they're putting up money to to fund, I think, around 100 microgrids. So there's some, there's some activity there. Interestingly, and a shout out to the website Microgrid Knowledge, they wrote a great story on the aftermath of this massive island-wide power outage earlier this month. And as far as we could tell, based on this reporting, the a lot of those microgrids were up and running. And there's, you know, there are a bunch of solar and storage microgrids, again, developed by like Tesla and Sonnen, and they were all fine operating through this massive outage that basically put the entire island in the black. I mean, we can talk about silver linings all you want, but I just, you know, the fact that 100% of the people in Puerto Rico don't have power today is devastating. The fact that health outcomes in Puerto Rico has caused thousands of people to die prematurely because of the energy situation is unacceptable. And I don't, I don't like, I just don't subscribe to the silver lining theory of this. Like the fact that Tesla's got a few microgrids where you've got like a little hospital here and a school there, you know, kudos to Tesla. I think that's amazing. Right. But that does not change the fact that Puerto Rico is still a basket case. I, there, there's really no like, real investable climate. Like, who is your counterparty? If PREPA signs a contract with you, do you really believe they're going to pay you back? If the Puerto Rican government signs a contract with you, do you think that they're bankable or investment grade? No, right? I mean, and even if, and even Pfizer or Coca-Cola, are they really going to be with the island for the next 20 years such that they're going to honor a PPA that they sign there? It's just, we are in such a mess. And the fact that this administration has not solved this problem in any way, shape, or form, such that very large sums of money can get into Puerto Rico is a travesty. Yeah, it's like we have an, a developing economy in the middle of a developed economy, and we can't resolve it, which is amazing to me. Also, when we look at how many, how much percentage of the island, when they when they say we have X percentage back, 80% or something, that's meters. You need to look at all the people who don't, you know, when the meters break, they if they can't fix them by screwing something in, they just don't fix them at all. So there are so many unmetered customers out there that don't even get counted. I totally agree. It's absolutely devastating and it's shameful as an American that we can allow Americans to live through that. And I do not want to play up these projects, these one-off projects, largely kind of charity projects as some kind of solution. I was suggesting, however, that there's a model for this stuff. And the, the, the actual projects operating did operate effectively through that recent outage. But I totally agree that this is not a stand-in for real action. And um, we have a long way to go. And, and it's very disappointing to see. Let's uh, wrap up the show. Give our listeners a little free electron, grab it from the wires, send it on. Catherine, what's yours this week? Yeah, sort of as a follow-up to our Statoil uh, conversation a couple of weeks ago, Axios reported that 
there is a new coalition of BP, Chevron, Southern Company, Mitsubishi, and Denbury Resources that have pulled together to work on carbon sequestration and carbon capture and enhanced oil recovery, and they're calling themselves Energy Advance Center. There are also some, and this is as a result of the tax credit that they were given um, in the big tax bill. And then there's another bill that was just introduced called Use It, and the acronym stands for U- Utilizing Significant Emissions with Innovative Technology. So there's all this carbon capture and utilization work out there going on. I still don't know if they're going to get much investment, even though they have an investment tax credit, but it shows that some of these companies are trying to step up and get something done because they have a big internal problem. Jigger, what's yours? So the Federal Transportation Administration got an extra $84 million in the increase in the omnibus. And the Trump administration actually flipped the program on its head. So instead of giving out three to $5 million per agency, which was 19 total, they ended up giving only 250000 to $1.2 million to 51 different transit agencies. And so in some ways, this has actually been a blessing in disguise. So now you've got 51 agencies that have little bits of money, and Proterra, BYD, other folks are actually going after these agencies and providing finance solutions so that people can get electric buses as a service. And so I think in some ways that the fact that the Trump administration sprinkled the money around means that there's going to be a lot more electric buses that get out there. And the reason this is relevant is the really the big trade show is APTA, which is, uh, I think, next week in uh, I think May 8th, I guess, in uh, Tampa, Florida. And so everybody's going to be wheeling and dealing electric buses down in Tampa soon. I have a darker story about electric transportation. It has to do with Tesla. I am really into this podcast from the Center for Investigative Reporting called Reveal. I highly recommend people listen to it if they appreciate good journalism and want to listen to investigations in audio form. They did an investigation of Silicon Valley companies and their hiring practices and how they treat workers, and they put out a story last week, I believe it was, and I just listened to it yesterday, about Tesla's workplace safety record. And they dug up a bunch of documents that were sent to them from whistleblowers. They talked to a ton of people, both on the record and whistleblowers off the record. And they, you know, they ba- they looked at why Tesla has historically had a safety problem, uh, an injury rate that was double the automotive industry at its factory. And a while back, Elon said that he was going to stand up and fix that record, and he took it personally, and he was going to you know, improve the safety rate, improve the injury rate so that it was better than the automotive industry. And recently, Tesla said that it was basically on par with other automakers. And, and the folks at Reveal and PRX dug through and found documents that showed the company has tried to recategorize injuries. They've um, tried to cover up injuries in order to improve their safety rate for their you know, public declaration for investors. And I recommend people listen to it. It's a really compelling story. Yeah, I mean, it, well, it shows that for all this innovation, whether it was Facebook or Tesla or others, like, there's also a downside to this. And you know, some of these fundamental principles really still have to be met. Yeah, there's a I mean there's a dark side to everything. How we get our materials for renewable energy and batteries and electric cars 
how we cite these projects, how people are treated within the companies, and we have to take a holistic view at um, how we eye these companies as they play a more important role in our lives. Hey, that's it, folks. A reminder, send in your voice memos to podcasts at greentechmedia.com. Find a quiet spot. Think about a question that you want us to address. Make it short and then send it in. And we will uh, do a Q&A episode coming up here. We're not sure exactly when, but we want to collect a bunch of them and we'll go through the best questions. So in the meantime, hit us up on Twitter. Uh, hit us up anywhere you get your podcast. Give us a rating and review. And uh, thanks for listening. Uh, Jigger and Catherine, good talking to you, as always. With Catherine Hamilton and Jigger Shaw, I'm Stephen Lacey. We are The Energy Gang, a production of greentechmedia.com. We'll catch you next week. Next week.